Hello and welcome to The Download. I'm your host, Dave Richardson. And let me tell you, I get so excited on, on certain podcasts. And this is one of those days because we have Sabib Sujali, who heads up global investing at RBC Global Asset Management. It's so rare that we get to, uh, to, to talk to Habib uh, because he's so busy. He's global. He's all around the world. He's not. Uh, he, he's got so much on his plate. Habib, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on, Dave. It's a real pleasure. And and so we uh, the, the, as as we often talk about on 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 this podcast, it's only an audio podcast. It's not a video podcast, so you don't get to see our our fabulous experienced looks that we have. Uh, if you could see Habib and you could see me, we've got a lot of experience, 30, 35 years of background in the investment business, many scars, many wrinkles. Uh, and uh, with that comes a lot of wisdom and a lot of experience and background uh, in, uh, in, in, in what we do. And of course, Habib, uh, and if you, if you go and you look at, uh, at Habib's track record, it just speaks for itself. He's a uh, he's a he's a fantastic investor, and and I think more importantly, as we've highlighted on previous appearances from Habib, uh, he just has a fantastic team that he works with, uh, and it, it's a very special way that they work together uh, to make great investment decisions. But Habib, as we were talking before, and I've, and I've, I've talked a little bit over the over the last year, uh, this is back to the '70s or back to the '80s in terms of of the investment environment with respect to inflation and an inflationary environment. And, and, and you had some interesting things to say about just how, how, how new this is, even for someone like yourself and many of the really experienced members of your team. Yeah, you know, this is, um, I mean, potential, this is the thing that we are at a point in market sort of history where the range of possible outcomes is huge. There are a bunch of people out there, very respectable, very sensible people saying, oh, this inflation is just a blip. Uh, you know, it's going to recede and it'll be, you know, another six months or so and it'll be gone and this is no big deal. Uh, and there's other people saying, no, 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 this is for real. This could be, this would go on uh, for a long time. We could get systemic inflation back to the 70s and 80s. And the market is sort of sitting there saying, wow, the range of possible outcomes is, is massive. The thing about, you know, and what, what you were saying, uh, basically, you very politely called me an old guy, which is <laughs> which oh, No. <laughs> we started young, Habib. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which is, which is absolutely fine. Uh, but, but the point is that, you know, I've been doing this a long time. And, uh, you know, even, I kind of studied inflation, uh, inflation accounting, uh, economics, uh, all of that at university. But once I started work, I mean, essentially, uh, rates were very high and rates have been falling and rates of inflation have been falling. And we've seen that for the last, you know, 30, 40 years. And, and sort of you and I, we're the more uh, mature vintages in this market. There's not too many people who actually remember what in what it was really like to invest in inflationary times so there's a lot of people sitting around scratching their heads and of course a lot has changed since the 70s right we have the yes. internet we have more technology more databases all of that so it's it, 
even if we do have inflation, it's not going to be identical to, to what it was before. And there's, there's just another point to, to make is that while the market participants, you know, investors don't really have experience of inflation, nor do risk models, nor do the quant models. Because, yeah. you know, the, the yes. data is data set of the last 20, 30 years is really rich. That's what they're based on. Uh, very few quant models go back to the, the 60s and 70s. So... This is a real head-scratcher, and you can see there's a huge amount of risk aversion. People are just saying, you know, like, I'm not taking a risk. I just want to get in the center, you know, move more towards value, towards something that is paying me now, you know, so dividend-paying stocks. Sure. You know, I don't care whether they don't have a future, but they're giving me something now. Fine. Let me just sit, sit on that, and, and we'll see. So I yeah. think that's very much where the market psychology is 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 right now, and and has been moving over the last couple of months. It's been been very rapid. Yeah, I I I, I was I was saying to you, uh, you know, I I I've been doing a lot of uh, of, of uh, investor events uh, in Canada over the last couple of weeks. You know, speak several thousand people, uh, and and you know, you, you I, I uh, we're doing them virtually. So I'm so I, I can't look out into the audience to see who's there. But from doing these types of events over over 20 years, uh, you know, I know who's sitting in the audience and, and it's, a, you know, it's a range. And typically the age is, you know, uh, 35 to, to 70 years old, um, even then. Uh, and particularly if we go back to where, you know, how many people invested in equity markets or bond markets even back back then, you know, retail investors, uh, there's there's. There's almost no one in the audience that I'm speaking to who's had any different experience than, you know, next year rates are likely lower than they were the year before. Uh, inflation is not something I need to concern myself with. I remember paying 20% on my mortgage back in the early 1980s, but I haven't seen that anytime recently and I, I don't expect to see it. In fact, I've, I've paid off my house if I'm, if I'm one of those people who's sitting in the audience and, and was living through that experience. So it's it's just something completely new, and so we, we've got to think about things differently. As you say, one one of the reactions is I just avoid risk altogether, take what's in front of me now, um, and and you know kind of play it down the middle. But but you're working with your team. How, how have you have you changed the process? Do the discussions sound different around the table as you're discussing individual companies? You know how, how you're going to move your portfolios around. And, and, and select the companies you want to own for the next 10 years. Because, you know, just going back to Habib tends, Habib can invest anywhere in the world, but focuses very much on companies, not countries or regions. Uh, and he, he, he views, his team views the, themselves as company owners and long-term owners, not just, not just trading in and out. So with that context, what does it look like in the room when the, when the team's talking now versus, say, two or three years ago? Yeah, so, you know, we, we've gone back to first principles and, and kind of just asked a really simple question. If we do have an inflationary environment, so that is input costs are going up and labor costs are going up, what kind of businesses thrive and prosper in that environment? Right now, Everyone kind of thinks, oh, this is value and it's about rising interest rates mean that uh, the discount rate goes up and, and so on. Yes, of course, 
rising interest rate means the discount rate goes up. The longer duration the asset is, the, 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 the more uh, impacted it is. But what it's really about is about being able to, if you're creating value, you can pass on any increases in, in input costs or labor costs. And that's the key. If you can pass it on and maybe pass it on with a little bit more, added on top, I mean, that's, that's the, thing. the way the maths work is, is that if your input costs go up and you maintain your percentage margin, you're actually making more in dollars, a lot more in dollars, right? So, yes. so that's the key, is how you can pass things on. And of course, when you have input costs going up, and not input costs, all input costs are going to go up at the same rate. Uh, you know, labor might go up by more, uh, oil might go up by, by less or more, and then copper and so on. So you have to see how this impacts different businesses. And, you know, it changes the competitive positioning in an industry. And one of the, the examples that we were debating is, so what happens in, in the retail industry? Right? Yeah. I mean, if you just take two very simple, you know, iconic companies of Walmart and Amazon, uh, who is more labor intensive? Who can change prices fastest? Amazon, of course, as, as the stuff comes in, you can just change the price on your website, right? You just keep marking it up as your input cost. Now, Walmart, it might take them a little bit longer to do that. But at the same time, uh, Amazon has to pay for picking, packing, and last mile delivery. Whereas Walmart, the customer, you and I, you know, we drive to the store, we pick the stuff off the shelves, we put it through the scanner, we put it into bags, and we put it in our car, we drive it home to get it to our kitchen. We're not charging Walmart for that. So Walmart's saving on that last mile delivery. So this changes the competitive positioning of, of an industry. Then there's also other industries that have long-term contracts, right, that have a long-term service contract for like five years or 10 years. And if you haven't built in uh, wage increases or inflation increase, or you've just put in like 2%, you could be in real trouble. Right, and, and and so we have to look, examine company by company, business by business. Who can pass this on, this on? Who has a relatively short cycle that, as as input costs go up, you can price up, as opposed to uh, subject to short term fluctuation in prices, but your revenues are fixed. That's that's trouble. So we're having to work through all all of these see who the winners are, and we know discount rates are going up, but if you can keep growing your, your revenues and your cash flows by more than the discount rate is going up, you can do very well. So this isn't a value versus growth thing. It, it's about who can adapt to this environment fastest. Uh, I think that's, that's the key. And you know, also, it becomes a more subtle thing that when labor is in short supply, Right? It's not just who's prepared to pay a little bit more for, for labor. Of course, that matters. But who's actually a good employer? You know, yes. Labor is going to go to people where they feel some loyalty. Of course, they want to be paid fairly. But they want to go somewhere, work somewhere where they're paid fairly, they're treated well, respectfully, where they have a career, where they feel they're progressing. And I think those sorts of things, that, that loyalty of suppliers and loyalty of labor, employers, 
those sorts of things also become really important now. Yeah, and 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 so and and I know that's something that you you spend a lot of time on looking at with the companies that you invest in. Uh, you know what we would call in classic term ESG, but what, but when you really drill down to it, it, it's some of these important factors that make it a, a a place where people want to work. There's a purpose. There's a way that they're they're treated by their employer, and and you've used this beyond this, these circumstances to identify opportunities in the market. It, it doesn't show up on the, on the, on the balance sheet or on the income statement, but, but it does show up in the long-term performance of the company. Uh, absolutely. Look, and, and there, there are certain industries today that have historically treated their workers just as a commodity, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, our, Put your zero-hour contract. When I need you, I'll call you up. You, you come, you work. I'll pay you for the hours. When I don't need you, see up. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. uh, don't worry about. You know, I don't care about what your rent bill is or whatever. That's your problem, not mine. And now, some you are saying, right? Okay, like if you are in the fast food business or in the uh, hotel or hospitality business, okay, now we need you. Come on back. And a lot of those workers are saying, sorry, thanks. I've got another job. And, uh, you know, and yeah, those yeah. industries have bad reputations now. And no one's going to, so, so you're going to have to pay above the odds, significantly above the odds, because people feel like, right, I need danger money to go back to that industry. Because it's antisocial hours, it's uncertain work, they've proven that they don't have a sense of loyalty towards me, the worker, and much rather go to someone else that is you know, a fair job, treats me respectfully, and, and and has a chance of being loyal to me. And, you know, so, so I think that some industries are, are going to struggle. Let, 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 me, let me go off, uh, off, uh, off script a little bit here, just as, just as I, I'm, I'm thinking, listening to what you're saying, and, and we, we talk about uh, environmental concerns and, 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 and companies that, that, that focus on that. Perhaps they have a, an objective to become, to have, uh, to be carbon neutral. At some point in in, in the future, do, do you think that 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 what we're going through right now uh, is going to pressure some of those companies uh, to 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 move off some of some of that commitment? Do you think are 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 you seeing that in in the companies that you work with? You know, uh, no, I uh, we're not seeing that uh, at at the moment. I I can see as margins come under pressure that maybe. Some will try and slide back on those uh, things, especially to preserve short-term, uh, uh, you know, so short-term profits. But longer term, if if the CEOs and the leaders of that business care about where where these businesses are going to be in ten or twenty years' time, then they really need to to move on this. So there's three three things really. One is. If the CEOs really care, where, what is the business going to look like in 20 years' time? Uh, you you better deal with 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 carbon and decarbonize your business model because your carbon is going to become expensive. If you care what your customers think of you, you better decarbonize because your customers are demanding it. And if you care what your employees think of you and the wider community think of you, you better do this too. And, you know, we all know that businesses need a social license to operate. So I, I think th that is a, a, 
it, it's almost become a non-negotiable um, pressure on on corporates. And those that cut corners on that, I think all they're doing is mortgaging the future. Yeah. And we would see that yeah. as quite a negative sign. And, yeah. So, so, so Habib, let, what, what, why don't we wrap up with just, um, is just how this affects the, the, the portfolio. So is, have you, has this new environment forced you to make a lot of changes in your portfolios? Do you think it's going to force you to make more changes going going forward? How does this play out around uh, around the, the portfolio and what it looked like six months ago to now, and where you think it looks uh, a, a year or two from now? Okay, so uh, what we've done so far is we've done some rebalancing in the portfolio, just making sure uh, you know risk and whatnot taking stuff, you know, a bit of capital out of uh, names that have done really well into few others and just make sure that from a risk perspective, we're not too exposed. One or two changes to the portfolio, nothing dramatic. But what we now, what we've got down to is just the basics of in this environment, in a different environment, what businesses do better and what businesses do worse? Which ones have a tailwind? Which ones have a headwind? And, and that that's where we're at now, trying to see how that, that list of preferences, you know, from your first to your second, your third, fourth, what moves up from the second division to the first division, what moves down from the first division to the second division, and things like that. That shuffling, that's where we're at now, is, uh, wow, this is a great business, but it's going to be in a tough environment. It's going to take it two, three, four years to adjust, and uh, suddenly its competitors will catch up because they're all in the same boat, and then that may not be a best idea. Whereas, wow, this business has a perfect business model for this environment. Let's, you know, move that up. Uh, and, and, and that sort of relative ranking is, is what we are going through right now. Excellent. Well, Habib, uh, fascinating conversation. Always, always great to catch up. Just great to see you. Um, you, you, you look well. Again, it's, it's, it's actually too bad. I, I look terrible, so I'm, I'm glad we're just audio. You look fantastic. <laughs> Uh, with that big smile as always, and and always uh, incredibly insightful things to say. So, Abid, thanks for uh, for taking the time to join us today. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me on. This recording has been provided by RBC Global Asset Management Inc. for informational purposes only, and is not intended to be investment or financial advice. You should consult your own legal, accounting, tax, investment, or financial planning advisors before engaging in any transactions. RBC Global Asset Management is the Asset Management Division of Royal Bank of Canada, RBC, which includes RBC Global Asset Management, Inc., RBC Global Asset Management, U.S., Inc., RBC Global Asset Management, U.K. Limited, RBC Global Asset Management, Asia Limited, and Blue Bay Asset Management, LLP, which are separate but affiliated subsidiaries of RBC.